0: Welcome to show 41 of the C-Suite podcast, which is being recorded at PR Week's 2017 PR360 conference in County Hall on the uh, side of the Thames in London, a two-day event that has brought together some fantastic speakers from the PR and communications industry. And I'm delighted that a few of them are taking some time out of the conference to chat to me today. The first of whom is Emily Kolker, who is the VP uh, for social impact and global campaigns at Pearson. Um, So thanks for joining me so quickly after your presentation, Emily.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That's a pleasure. Uh, Now, you've just come uh, from a panel, session with the title campaigns with a purpose Mm -hmm. Um, so before we dig a little deeper into some of the things that uh, you were focusing on can you just give us a quick overview of, of what that was all about
1: Yeah, so the panel itself was looking at different campaigns that are driving social impact, community mobilization, actually aligned with the mission of specific communities and different ways in which we can kind of accomplish causes. So I spoke specifically about Pearson's campaign um, that we founded called Project Literacy, how that's aligned with Pearson's mission um, and how that has a specific impact on a community that Pearson isn't able to reach through its commercial operations.
0: Okay, well that leads nicely onto my next question because it was about that campaign I wanted to ask you C- can you just talk a little bit more about about the campaign but also yeah. how it came about and the resources it takes to, to you know develop something like that and then obviously manage it
1: yeah it's a great question and actually I think it's it's pretty novel um, in its approach Pearson used to have like many um, corporations a foundation the foundation was responsible for all of the company's CSR activity in uh, 2014 what we decided to do was actually close that foundation and bring what we consider social impact and house. We were doing that so that we could align with our commercial ambitions and our mission as a whole so we could get real strategic alignment with what the business was doing. In doing that, one of the opportunities that we found was in thinking about campaigns from, a mul- from multiple perspectives, thinking about the programs we could build that we weren't able to service through our regular operations, the type of thought leadership that we were able to take a stance on, the types of partnerships that we would need to help us fulfill a spe- very specific and important cause, and wrapping all of that in marketing. So we founded Project Literacy after running through a competition, as it were, internally to identify the right theme, uh, and we landed on Literacy because we saw it as so critical to the mission of learning uh, that is Pearson's ambition. Um, and from there, we built a theory of change, did a landscape analysis to understand where the gaps were in the market and what the opportunity was in terms of solving this crisis that 758 million people are subject to. Um, and then the theory of change meant that we had to rely on partnerships because it's a very, very saturated space, literacy is, and we want to make sure that we are doing more as a community rather than replicating what others are doing.
0: Was it, I, I want to come back to you actually on the partnership bit. It was interesting. You, you mentioned there the 758 million 58 so million. So Nearly uh, a billion people. Yeah, which is crazy, but but also um, quite relevant. Obviously, we're based here in the UK. We've got yeah. international listeners to, to, the, uh, to the podcast, but some of those stats in, in the UK as well was quite... astonishing.
1: Absolutely astonishing. So we typically think of something like illiteracy as being very much a developing world problem, but it's a developed world problem too. 34 million Americans can't read above a fifth grade level. In the UK, one in five children leave primary school unable to have the right level of literacy. In London, it's even worse. Um, So these are statistics that we don't think about largely because, for example, two-thirds of the population of illiterate people are in India. But this is a critical issue that is linked to pretty much every other issue and cause that we think about. It's just invisible. Yeah, There's yeah. a stigma. Uh, people are ashamed of it. It's also one of those things that doesn't seem as urgent because we talk about education. And yet, pre-literacy skills, for example, to enable education are so critical. And then adult literacy skills to ensure that those children have the right mindset to even be interested in education um, just as fundamentally important
0: um you, you mentioned coming back to the partnership bit uh, there so you had a slide up in your presentation mm-hmm. with a, a, a huge list of, of, of corporate partners that are involved you, you're positioning yourselves as the founding partner that's right but how are you policing um the involvement of of those other partners rather than them just saying yep yeah, we're, we're on board and here's our logo how are you making sure that they're getting involved and contributing to the whole campaign
1: So the campaign is entirely reliant on partnerships, um, and that's because there are different ways in which we need to deliver impact. So some of it is through the networks that allow us to amplify the work that Project Literacy as a platform um, can do. So we have charitable partners and media partners. Um, Some of it is about developing programming on the ground. Some of it is about aggregating best practice or running research, for example, with UNESCO. So we have 100 partners. Um, They are very diverse. They range from literacy organizations such as World Reader... Room to Read, the National Literacy Trust, to uh, corporations such as Microsoft and third sector partners. I just mentioned UNESCO, for example, to name a few. We don't police them per se, Um, this is very much kind of a generous movement as it were, but what we do do is we categorize partners and we're very transparent with partners when they're interested in coming on board. So we have three tiers, we have what we call community partners, collaborating partners and strategic partners. Uh, Partners at the strategic partner level often co-fund either through in-kind resources or with cash donations, the development of programming or marketing. Um, and we make very clear what we consider the value exchange. So what are these partners required to do to be part of this movement? And what's our commitment as Project Literacy to them? So Pearson's role in this is in being the convener. And as a um, the world's largest education company and a FTSE 100, we have wonderful networks to help us convene really effective groups um, together and help them do more. And it, we really do believe that our impact can be greater if we bring great people and celebrate the work that they're doing and help it be even deeper or more scaled.
0: So tell us about some of the stuff that, that you've been doing then.
1: We've got some super exciting programs and they range wildly so I will give you, maybe I'll give you two examples. Okay. Um, one example is um, a program that is through multiple partnerships in the U.S. that we're just kicking off now. It's with Microsoft, with Pro Literacy, an adult literacy um, organization in the U.S., um, as well as the University of Pennsylvania. In that specific case, what we're doing is we're developing a platform that was previously developed by UPenn um, that evaluates literacy skills of impoverished youth, and then provides remediation for them to improve their literacy skills in the community. So those three partners, well, between Pearson, Pro Literacy that has resources for remediation, UPenn that has um, the methodology behind this platform, and Pearson that's able to provide the distribution and the learning resources, we're able to build something that's very robust, cross-sector, um, and is addressing literacy in a way that it wouldn't have been done before through both the assessment as well as the remediation Another completely different example is a program that we've run with um, Unreasonable Institute. This is an accelerator. Um, an accelerator. What we've done is we've looked at different social enterprises, so for-profit companies that are solving illiteracy in indirect ways. So, for example, in Tanzania through um, feminine hygiene products, because girls don't go to school um, when they have um, their periods because they don't have anything to manage that, or through solar panels and solar lighting in Guatemala, for example, um, or through food um, being distributed to schools as well as an incentive to bring children to school. So working with a wide variety of these social entrepreneurs we put them in touch with mentors we hold workshops with Pearson employees as well as specialists to help them we uh, introduce them to different financing options to help Amplify and make so much bigger the growth that they have the potential to deliver and these are companies that are already on the cusp of just Blowing up to really start to address illiteracy differently. So two very different approaches one is very much about this kind of multi-sector opportunity to think about different aspects of literacy with impoverished youth in particular the other is about somewhat established but still growing businesses that are indirectly impacting literacy and helping them to focus much more on literacy and think about ways in which we can accelerate the work they're doing.
0: This is clearly more than a job for you. you're p- the passion. Oh I'm <laughs> so great. passionate about it's it. it's amazing. Yes, absolutely. it's fantastic. It's, yeah. it, genuinely, it's, it's brilliant to hear. Um, li- listen, in, in your of your session you showed of um, a couple of videos of, of sort of of Uh, aspects of the the overall campaign but individual campaigns so for example there was the alphabet of of illiteracy and the mighty pencil machine I'll I'll, when I come to write up the show notes for for listeners benefits here I'll I'll share links to those you know or or elements of that online Um, they've clearly um, resonated within the industry itself because I know you've you've won lots of awards um, for it but outside of that how are you actually measuring Um, the impact that you are making you know what how are you what you what how are you seeing those results that that leads to actually improving those stats that you that you mentioned so that's
1: so it's it's a really important question because for me this would be a failure if it was a pure communications campaign Um, so we I mentioned the theory of change early on uh, when we were talking and in that theory of change we look at three specific pillars and we measure under each of those pillars so we look at how we're advancing best practice So this is the amount of research that is now available, the types of uh, programming that is being scaled, that is known to work, and there's evidence that it's working. The second area is innovating for new solutions. So we look very specifically on the beneficiary population and how that's leading to literacy outcomes. And then the third area is the more kind of marketing and communications driven one, which is about mobilizing action and generating awareness. And this is when we look at things like impressions and reach, et cetera. But importantly, there are two other things I want to mention. Underpinning all of that is the promise of us actually eradicating illiteracy, working with policymakers, actually looking at the ways which we can help communities, societies, countries specifically make change. So we've developed a cost benefit analysis that looks at when people improve their literacy, what is their likelihood of increasing their income. We times that by the amount of years that people have left to work based on the programs that are part of Project Literacy. And through that, we can demonstrate to governments how much literacy is actually going to impact um, the gross national product or the, Im- the impact of that specific country so that it gets more people on board to really commit to this. So, as I said, the beneficiaries are really important, but we want to look beyond the literacy outcomes at what the societal outcomes are. And then the other piece I wanted to mention is for Pearson. So Pearson is committed to this because, of course, it's tied to our mission, but it also has a really strong brand benefit for us when we know that, you know, abstractly, when people um, know that companies are invested in social missions, they're more likely to recommend those companies. So there's a higher grade of advocacy, especially during times of risk, they are more likely to support those companies or understand and forgive them as it were. And so we've seen some really strong brand benefits in terms of people being willing to, being more favorable towards Pearson as a result of them knowing that we founded Project Literacy people being willing to recommend Pearson as a result and even people being willing to buy products and services because they know that we're a socially responsible company and that our commitment extends beyond our commercial operations very much to how our mission can be impacting marginalized communities that we can't reach otherwise.
0: Excellent. Um, there was a question that came up in in the session um, from uh, Lawrence uh, Francis, who's director of client strategy at, at, at Premier PR, um, and it was related to you, you showed a lot of the celebrity endorsement yeah. that, that you've had across across uh, the world, really uh, on Twitter and social uh, and other um, aspects of social media. Um, and, and what he asked, and, I, and so I've asked him if I could repeat that in, in this podcast, which he said yes. Was was uh, I thought it was a really good question because he was asking how you got or how you went about getting all that celebrity endorsement because you didn't pay for any of it did you
1: that's right so we have been incredibly fortunate to um basically land on the most important insight. So the campaign has had three big moments so far, and we have a lot of kind of ongoing communications in between that. And I'll just reference what that is as the backdrop to the celebrity question. The first is we launched kind of a shocking campaign to get people to sit up and pay attention um, in February 2016, the alphabet of illiteracy that you referenced, which was really about demonstrating to people how illiteracy underpins nearly every other issue in the world in a very dramatic way. The second was around International Literacy Day, uh, which is really when we got a lot of the celebrity endorsement. So we continued that message. And what we did to get the celebrities on board was actually appeal to the causes they already cared about. So Bono cares, and Elton John, they care about AIDS and poverty. Emma Watson cares about gender inequality. Um, All of these different celebrities, and I can continue to mention them, Sting, uh, Idris Elba, uh, Julianne Moore, etc., they all have causes they care about. And as soon as they understood, after we shared with them the research that showed how literacy fuels that problem, they really wanted to get excited about it. And they wanted to share with their networks ways in which they could help. So it was really through appealing to the causes that they already cared about. We've had a similar um, reaction as well with our latest campaign iteration. So we've moved from this kind of shock and awe to empathy, which is kind of a traditional campaign flow to get people to take meaningful action, not just kind of um, create buzz around the topic. Yeah. Um, so we launched in, in March, so it's still relatively new at South by Southwest, uh, this concept of first words, which is about adults actually learning to read and write because it has a disproportionate effect on their children and their communities. Okay. And our global ambassador is Lily Cole. Lily Cole's an entrepreneur. She, is, she set up impossible.com if you haven't seen it. Um, She also has a double first from Cambridge, she's a mother, she um, is a real proponent of this issue. So she's been heavily involved from the beginning, coming on board and aligning this with her specific passion, but also uh, the ways in which she's become an entrepreneur and a spokesperson for this issue as a whole.
0: Excellent. Um, I put a, uh, a note on social media um, last week that we were going to be chatting. I had a question submitted via LinkedIn for you. And this comes from Philip Palmer, who is the National Recruitment Manager for Wren's Kitchens. Um, and he wants to know how being a global organization has shaped your strategy. Um, but Philip specifically asked, is it per location, country, etc., and does religion um, and culture have a big part in shaping your outreach and content?
1: Wow, it's a great question. I've never had that one before. Um, what I would say is there are probably two ways in which I can answer this. The first is that we see this This is a global problem and we see this as a global campaign. That said, um, you can't focus everywhere. You'll dilute your impact and you won't be able to be uh, as effective. So what we've done is we've actually aligned our programming, so what we do on the ground, in the priority countries that are also Pearson's priority countries. And we've done that very specifically because we then have manpower on the ground. We have people who can share their expertise, who can raise awareness, help us facilitate the actual programming. Um, so that's how kind of being a global organization gives a, affords us this global view but also we get very specific in thinking about where can we really make progress how do we align that with um, the people that we have on the ground in terms of the programs the communications and the people that we serve um, we don't look at religion, culture geography um, any other kind of race, uh, gender, any of those things, this is really about inclusivity, uh, and the celebration of diversity. We know that people, women in particular, disproportionately impacted, uh, the poor also disproportionately impacted. And so this is about not cherry picking those who need support. It's about those in greatest need. And we typically find that in communities that a lot of our partners serve and that are again, very connected to communities with high crime rates, high poverty, um, and those that you would find particularly in urban centers, but also in rural areas where, for example, technology isn't able to serve them in the way it might do elsewhere
0: you've got so much going on in this campaign um what I was just keen to to know really in sort of wrapping up this this interview is is what's next for it you know where where are you looking to take it and and how how long can it you know how big can it can it grow really
1: so we think that this is um we've had a number of conversations about this we're on something in that um you know we've I kind of hate to use this term, but we've kind of given birth to something that is kind of running by itself. The momentum that we've got, the results that we're seeing are much greater than what we ever anticipated. And so there will come a time where we need to make a decision as to do we let this live and breathe by itself? And what does that look like? So our dream is really that this is, um, I hate to say coalition led, because often that implies a lot of bureaucracy. But actually that the partners that are currently involved... Continue the work that is being done. Pearson will continue to also be involved, but the capacity in which we're involved, perhaps less as the convener, more as kind of sponsoring specific programs or advocating for a particular issue within literacy or in the policy space, etc., that will become more of Pearson's role. The campaign itself will continue to have those pillars, but it may be just run and organized a little bit differently. Um, We've always said that we want to eradicate illiteracy by 2030 in line with the sustainable development goals. And uh, we've now figured out what the figure is that the global community needs to invest to do that. And we intend to make sure that that
0: happens. And so on that note, if someone wants to get involved to help you achieve that, either personally or or encourage their businesses to uh, to, to maybe partner up with, uh, with Pearson as well. How do they do that? Where do they go for more information? Well, I'll start on
1: the personal side. There are three things that you can do besides visiting projectliteracy.com to find all of this. Is number one, you can share information. There's a huge amount that we share, particularly on social media. So if you have a look on Twitter at Rewriting Lives, Facebook, Project Literacy, Instagram, etc. Help more people see this invisible curse as urgent. The second thing is that you can donate. Um, As with many causes, we can do more when we have more funds. Um, Those funds go directly to partners. I want to be really clear, none of those funds come to Pearson whatsoever. Um, So if you want to donate to specific individuals, specific programs, uh, or partners, you can do that. The third thing is you can volunteer. So share your time, not just your money. Uh, We have a volunteer map where you can identify places where you can volunteer, specifically on projectliteracy.com. As an organization, if you'd like to get involved, please do contact me um, at emily.kolker at pearson.com um, be happy to share with you different opportunities think about innovative ways to partner and to really project this forward in a new way
0: well i have to say um emily as, as campaigns with purpose go yours is truly an inspirational one so thank you very much for giving up a bit of time to, to thank chat
2: you with. russell so excited to be part of this
0: absolute pleasure uh, we are back after this quick break
2: Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversis enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversis.com.
0: Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at PR360's uh, conference. Um, we've moved into the main hall during lunchtime, so apologies if you can hear any background music. It's actually quite quite nice. Um, but joining me now is Morvan McKinnon, who is the PR Director for Levi's in Europe and the UK. So welcome to the show, Morvan.
3: Hi, Russell. Thank you.
0: Um, now, you've just uh, finished on a panel session um, at the conference, uh, 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 talking about a topic that's come up a few times on this series, actually, which is uh, influencer marketing, um, something I'm, I'm guessing is becoming pretty crucial for brands such as yours and particularly in the fashion world
3: yeah absolutely i think um you know i've I've been in my role for a good six years now and it's certainly in the last few years the nature of uh, how we do pr has changed quite significantly so um social media influencers have just become such a um, more important part of the kind of the overall mix um, that that we're dealing with, and it, and it requires kind of quite a different mindset and, and skill set versus traditional media. Um, so it's a very interesting time, I think, in PR trying to get the balance right and also get the uh, the experience right and the messaging right for both traditional media as well as social media influencers.
0: Interesting, and um, I'll, I'll come on to actually ask you because I was going to ask how it all sits within the PR. Our role but um in terms of these the the social influencers and social media are there any particular channels that you're focusing on more than others at, at the moment so
3: um, we probably focus across as many channels as, as we can, if, if I'm honest. I think diversity and diversification is, is key on, uh, on social media. And I think the benefit of working with particular influencers is that they can offer you share a voice on a channel that perhaps you wouldn't have share a voice on um, otherwise. So often in selecting influencers, we'll, we'll really look at the, um, the size of the audience that are particularly Influencer might have on one social media channel versus another. Now, um, obviously, coming from the world of fashion, um, you know, visual um, social media channels are are. Quite important course, yeah. for us, so instagram youtube snapchat as well I think there is a lot of um, the ha- there is still a lot of discussion as to whether snapchat is uh, as relevant as it was since the launch of Instagram stories, but I think we feel that it is it does still cater for a very particular audience, Um, and then actually podcasts, uh, like the one that you're doing today, I think is a um, a very new and emerging area for us, which I think we've only just kind of scratched the, the surface of, but which I think we're seeing... Influencers, as they also try to diversify their skill sets and the channels that they're on, um, we're seeing a few influencers start to move into the world of podcasts That's as well. That's interesting.
0: Well, let me pick up on that because it's <laughs> nice to, nice to talk to someone who embraces podcasting. What, where are you seeing the benefits of podcasting then within within particulars, you know, within the fashion uh, world?
3: Yeah. So, um, well, like I said, I think you know the the world of influencers is is incredibly crowded. Um, there, are, there are so many influencers. And I think... Um, at a certain point um, these influencers need to find a way uh, through which they're also able to differentiate themselves from um, from the broader crowd and I think those that are you know going about it in a really smart way are you know they might have started on YouTube or they might have started with a blog or on Instagram but they're moving into lots of different areas so be that presenting be that even writing editorial for Traditional media all um, be that uh, doing podcasts. So we've seen there's a there's a couple of new fashion podcasts okay. uh, that are uh, that are hosted by um, so the influencers that that we know where they're really providing a uh, a commentary on the uh, the fashion industry. They're interviewing brands. They're interviewing other influencers, and um, they're almost um, you know becoming editors or, or journalists within Excellent. their own on on these podcasts. Brilliant.
0: Well, let's let's talk about how you you find these uh, influencers because as, as you said, uh, uh, you know, just before, there's there's obviously so many that, that you can be approaching. How mm-hmm. do you um, choose and find the right key influence to work with that can reach your particular um, audience?
3: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. I think it's a um, you know, it's, it's it's a question that that kind of we discuss almost daily at at Levi's because I think it's something that you need to. Continue to challenge yourself every day on as to who is right um, as an influencer uh, to collaborate with as a brand. So at Levi's, authenticity is really uh, is, is really critical to us, not only as a brand value, but also in terms of how we select which influencers we work with because ultimately we want the audience to feel that it is an authentic um, relationship that we have with the influencer and that the way that they're communicating about our brand is authentic. So we will look at influencers both big and small in terms of their followers, Um, we'll look at their engagement levels, so the number of likes, Um, we will look at the aesthetics of their their pages, so Instagram as as an example, we'll really look aesthetically as to how they build their pages, how they style um, themselves and what are the brands they're working with, Um, because ultimately of course we want to um, elevate the Levi's brand, so brand adjacencies are incredibly important. And then, probably one of the final criteria would be um, who follows follows that influencer. So you may have influencers that have relatively low follower numbers, but um, the people who are following them are incredibly influential. And certainly on Instagram, you now get that that insight in terms of who's following, who's liking their their posts, which all of that holistically enables us to develop a point of view on who's right for us to work with.
0: And do you meet with them? Do you get them involved in the, in the brand before they go out? You know talking about you obviously
3: uh, we do yeah. we do so um as as I mentioned authenticity is really key for us as a as a brand and we can't be authentic if we don't know the influencer and if they don't know us so um, we've built up a strategy over the last few years um, that um, means that we really try to develop a long term relationship with influencers so we set up with uh, a VIP gifting suite a couple of years ago um, which is called the House of Strauss. Um, It's in central London. Actually we have a sister um, House of Strauss in LA as well and it's, um, it's a space where we bring in talent, editors and influencers to um, meet with us and to to pick out product uh, for themselves and and it's a great forum for us to get to know these influencers, for for them to get to know us and for us to really be able to gauge whether what we've seen on their pages is a genuine connection and whether they they are people that we feel are genuinely connected with us and want to work with us long term and not just because they think there's maybe a short-term paycheck sure, in it yeah
0: okay um, and picking up on something you, you we talked about right at the start of the interview in terms of like uh, this sitting within your role now as w- within the role of PR how, how much of, of your role is taken up working within you know the online influencer world yeah.
3: So I th- I'd say it's it's um, inc- it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of my part of my role. Um, certainly in the last year or two, um, I think it's it's really um, become almost the focus of, of what we do. Um, but that's not to say that traditional media isn't important for us. I think that it's really about getting the mix of channels right and what traditional media do um, and why they're so critical for us still is that they real credibility within uh, the industry so for us it's about getting that balance right between traditional media and social media influencers who perhaps are able to reach a slightly different perhaps slightly younger uh, target audience but we see the two working hand in hand but in terms of my day-to-day I'd say it's probably you know 50 50 or maybe even 60 40 uh, weighted towards kind of social media influencers but okay. i think it is worth adding that a lot of editors are becoming social media influencers yeah, course, yeah. within their yeah. own rights as well so media owners have realized that you know they need to diversify as, as well so there's really um it's you know there's a lot of convergence within the industry yeah.
0: so tell us about um you know a recent campaign that you've been you know working on in this space and and maybe a couple of the people you've been working with
3: so um I think we're really fortunate that um you know we've we've had a lot of really great campaigns that you know we've we've had opportunities to work with some quite big name influencers so um, at a European level we partnered with uh, Chiara Ferragni of the Blonde Salad um, and uh, we uh, created a a capsule product collection with her which was sold um, at really uh, selected exclusive um, retailers across Europe and that was something that was very collaborative we brought her out to San Francisco where she was able to work with our design team at our denim atelier and Innovation Lab to create these designs, and so you really, you know, we really took her on the journey wow. with us. Um, so I think that's a really great example. But also, um, you know, more more recently, um, we uh, we went to Coachella. As a brand, Coachella is uh, probably one of the biggest festivals in the world. It takes place in uh, in Palm Springs, and it's um, in terms of. A, a relevant cultural moment and we really tried to position the brand as being at the centre of culture. Um, Coachella was a great moment for us and one where we brought quite a lot of influencers out to Coachella with us uh, from Europe to um, be part of a, a Levi's brand experience while they were out there which involved um, of course not only going to the festival but also um, engaging in customization activities. Activities at the Levi's tailor shop uh, that we had set up there we had a, um, a, a pool party where we also brought in top talent like Poppy Delevingne, Emily Ratajkowski Solange Knowles um, and it was not only an opportunity for us to bring out influencers from Europe and uh, continue to build our relationships with them and spend quality time with them, but also to reconnect with those influencers who perhaps have been brought out to Coachella um, with other brands um, and have them come to our pool party and again reconnect with them.
0: Um, Right. In terms of uh, measuring success, though, so you talked about likes and followers, and and sometimes and and, and against being discussed on here, you know, sometimes that can be argued as vanity metrics in terms of that kind of engagement. What about selling more product, more yeah. jeans, more? I, I have to say, you're living the brand here as well, and <laughs> when you're when you, kitted out in, in the denim. I'll take a photo and, and tweet that as well. But yeah, so in terms of selling more more products?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, you know, one that, um, again, I, I don't know that there are really concrete answers yet. I think you know, we've seen with, you know, the likes of Chiara Ferrani as an example, who is, you know, has a huge following. Um, I want to say she's on probably more than six million followers uh, right now. You know, when we've worked with um, influencers like her, especially in markets like Italy, um, which is where she's originally from um, and, and hugely Influential, we've seen uh, kind of immediate sellouts in our stores. Um, but I think you know that's that's one case, and of course, not influ- all influencers have the same level of reach that that she does. But um, I think that's where you need to really have. Uh, look at how you can have all of your influencers work together um, to to reach, I, I suppose, a, a critical mass. And um, I suppose some of the ways that we know um, how if campaigns have been successful has been on you know simply you know certain products that that we've really focused on from a, a gifting point of view when we're working with influencers such as uh, you know, there's a real resurgence in Levi's logo tees, and a lot of that has really been driven through social media so um, connecting with the right influencers at the right time and then Being really excited about the product and posting about it on our channels, and um, it's in you know the the last um, you know the last kind of probably year or so, the demographic of our consumer base is really starting to shift. You're seeing a lot of younger consumers, teenagers, coming in um, and basically uh, taking you know multiple of the you know these T-shirts with them, which I think. That's not to say that that is only because of the work that we're doing with influencers because, of course, there's a much broader marketing machine um, at, at Levi's um, that's, that's focused on these areas. But I think they make up a very important part of that overall marketing mix in terms of um, building brand equity, connecting the brand um, with the right aesthetic um, and um positioning it alongside other brands which are respected um you know from a fashion style point of view
0: okay and so um final question in terms of you know this whole area how how do you how do you see this whole sort of aspect of pr influencer marketing progressing in in the sort of like 12 18 months and beyond
3: so um i think that I think that the world of influencers is becoming increasingly crowded. Um, There are so many different influencers, and um, almost every influencer has an agent now as well. Um, So, you know, there's a real... um, You you feel there's a real drive amongst influencers to try and commercialise what they're doing. And I think that the reality is that... um, I'm not sure that there are enough marketing dollars to be able to finance everyone. So I think what will be really interesting to see over the next 12 to 18 months are, you know, who are the influencers that are able to really differentiate themselves, potentially um, diversify across different channels um, and connect with different consumer uh, audiences that way. Um, But I think certainly for brands, it's, it's up to us to very much keep on top of that and, and look at how can we offer um, unique experiences to these influencers uh, that both benefit us but also enable them to create um, kind of unique content that they're going to be really excited about um, and that will make them genuinely want to post um, about the brand um, you know, outside of campaigns as, as well.
0: Excellent, that's great. Uh, Morvan McKinnon, uh, thank you for joining the show.
2: Thank you. Capstone Hill Search are global recruitment experts for the public relations, public affairs, corporate and digital communications industries. We are the only recruitment partners to the PRCA in the UK, PR Council in the USA, and the ICCO's endorsed recruitment partner internationally. With offices in London, Melbourne, Sydney, as well as New York, covering the UK, Europe, continental USA and Australasia, Whether you are looking for a new role or have a role to fill, get in touch at capstonehillsearch.com.
0: You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at PR360's conference, and my next guest is Flushman Hillard Fishburne's Deputy CEO and Senior Partner, Ali G, um, who has just finished talking about the seven sins of change and how to avoid them. Um, Ali, before we uh, go through what those seven sins are, uh, can you just set the scene in terms of what changes you're referring to that, that you believe communicators should be looking to bring about?
4: I think it's easy to think that when I'm talking about change, I mean just behaviour change, when in fact change can encompass anything from uh, making people love a brand they haven't previously loved before driving up share price it can be engaging employees it can be about delivering brand uh, or corporate reputation so anything which makes a measurable difference to a business or a brand's objectives.
0: And, and, what, and what are your main concerns um, you know that, that you've a sort of like focusing on there before we actually go through those seven sins what's your concerns about about the whole issue in terms of PR and and as us you know what we're doing as communicators
4: well my biggest concern has always been that we don't measure what we do that we don't really have any idea if any of the campaigns we're working on are actually making a difference and um I think that that's problematic because uh, other people, other industries are taking budget from us and we will continue to do so, rightly actually, if we can't prove that what we're doing actually works. So that's at the heart of the problem, but it also points to the fact that as an industry we are increasingly focusing on issues around creativity, around um, great strategy, content is obviously very, very important now. but. If we focus on content, social, digital, creativity as outputs and don't think about the outcomes they're driving, I think we've got our eye off the ball.
0: Okay. Well, here's your chance then to go through. Sorry to get you to do this again because I know you've just come off stage right. talking through them, but let's, let's go through those seven sins that, that you've highlighted. And, you know, you, you talked about that these are the aspects that... Um, you know, end up those, you know, drive those common pit, pitfalls that uh, communicators are, are going through that, that don't end up changing anything. So that's right. From number one, let's well, go through I, them.
4: <laughs> I would argue that the first uh, sin is timidity. Okay. And the real problem here is that if you imagine a new business situation and you're working in an agency and a client brief lands on your desk, um, nine out of 10 times, you're busy trying to ingratiate yourself to the new prospect rather than pointing out that oftentimes the brief isn't totally clear in terms of what they actually want. So my uh, sin suggests that people are too timid, that they don't actually say to the client, can I ask you to be clear? What is the change that you want to see? So that's number one. Number two is assumption. Basically that... um, People assume when they're given a change, if you imagine a world where you are actually clear on what the change the client wants to see is, oftentimes PR people go straight for it. So if it's help people lose weight, for example, or drive up um, responsible drinking rates, people think that what they need to do is campaign towards that goal, when in actual fact a much more simple ask of people, a much simpler form of behavior change can deliver that outcome. The third uh, sin is greed. And this is often, I'm afraid, a client-side sin, which is asking too much. If your client says that they want a 25% uh, change in consumer behavior, or a 25% shift in attitudes to a particular issue, that is simply likely to be unrealistic. It's certainly not going to be sustainable over a short time period. Big-scale behavior change doesn't happen in months, and double-digit behavior change not only takes time, but takes large budgets, and usually requires um, a multi-layered campaign which um, I think is what we usually fail to do.
0: Do you think, just picking up on that particular one before we get through, go through the others, do you think enough agencies are brave enough to say to their clients, that's not going to happen?
4: Yeah, no I don't. I think that's <laughs> exactly the problem. You know, I had a, a client ask me uh, last year to set a target for how, mu- how many people in the population were going to act differently as a result of our work and they were spending a lot of money. and I had a strong sense that they wanted me to say, by this time next year, you know, 5% more people will be doing something. But in reality, the particular issue the client was grappling with was subject to a media and parliamentary and influencer onslaught. Everyone was against this particular issue. And so... Even if we'd managed to uh, get popular opinion to stand still, that would have been a huge outcome. And I think it is important to be brave, not to be timid, and to be clear about what's achievable up front. And that is hard because sometimes your client will have to go back to the board and say, we've spent £700,000 and we've managed to stand still. But standing still in the face of huge antipathy in the media might be a huge achievement.
0: I just wanted to ask you. Earlier this morning, in, in his keynote, Peter Cross, who is the director of customer experience at John Lewis, he had a real pop. Let's say at the typical stunt campaign, let's call it, which is, um, you know, where where um, an agency has set something up and and you're hoping for a photo opportunity, and then everyone brags about how much coverage they got off off that photo opportunity. But then what he was actually talking about was, you know, what impact has that had on brand reputation, for example. So that kind of sits in with some of the things that you're talking about.
4: So I have a huge amount of respect for people that do stunts. Oftentimes when I've done them, they've been my worst nightmare. Um, And obviously a lot rides on them in terms of delivering coverage, as you say. I wouldn't poo-poo them to quite such a degree. If you look at some of the best stunts, what they have done is deliver brand awareness, which in some cases is the objective in itself. And in terms of brand perceptions and brand positioning, it depends what the stunt is. If the stunt clearly articulates uh, an essence of a brand, a message that the brand wants to portray in the stunt itself, and that pervades the coverage that we see and it pervades the conversation that follows it, then as long as that was the objective, that is change. And my hobby horse is change, not you know, how, necessarily how to get there. And I do think that stunts can deliver change. It's all about being clear what the objective was in the first place and being very clear to measure it at the outcome.
0: Okay, all right, let's move on, number four.
4: So number four is blindness. Uh, I think a lot of us talk about doing campaigns that are built on research, and in reality most of the research that people claim to have done is what I call site research, which is observations of what we see people do. And what's missing there is what I call the in research, which is what's in their heads or hearts, and why does that drive the behaviour we currently observe. The clue is in the name insight. Insight is what's in people's heads and what we see them do. And both sorts of data need to be used to uh, develop develop an insight. And a strong insight delivers a strong strategy. A strong strategy delivers change. Without those components, it's not going to happen. Next up is laziness. And that's simply a reflection of the fact that the status quo is where people want to be. People don't want to be forced to be different, people don't want to be told to get off the sofa, and so it's important to make the ask of people small. Uh, if, you're, if you want to change a wholesale character in someone, it's never going to work. So be clear about what the change is that you want to see and try and reduce the ask into something simple that they can do to make a difference.
0: Okay. You're, now, your next one, I, I, I must admit, I, I didn't know the word when you put it up on the screen. <laughs>
4: Hubris, yeah. It's um, arrogance or um, over, overt pride, if okay. you like. And it's this... I think as a business, as an industry, we go around slapping each other on the back for great creative work and I love some of the stuff that we see at CAN and it is fantastic to deliver spine-tingling creative work. But sometimes we allow the excitement and the glamour of the work to get in the way of whether it delivered real change. Now increasingly, when people are entering awards at the moment, they're being forced to prove that the work worked but even now people aren't rigorous in looking at the outcome the difference that we really made.
0: Okay and your final one?
4: The final one is basically waving your finger in the air in lieu of doing measurements and you know I could bore for England about measurement but the point is more of us need to do more measurements without it we simply can't prove the change we want to see.
0: Excellent. I do think you've got the basis of a good book here. <laughs> Who knows, or maybe have a film. I no intention of doing one. <laughs> uh, now, uh, very interesting going through th- this list with you and obviously listening to you-, you talk it through earlier. If I was to turn the tables and focus on a campaign that has achieved its aim in terms of behaviour change, I'd be keen to get your opinions on it. And, th- and the one I'm thinking of is, um, which is quite sort of well known now, is the Missing Type campaign. It was run by uh, MHP Communications and it was for NHS Blood and Transplant. And their aim was to increase the the number of registered blood donors. It's- definitely won a a host of awards um, in in the industry Um, and in fact I used it myself I was up at NHS communications uh, day Uh, I ran a a workshop up there and I used that as a a particular case study so I just wondered what you thought of it and why you think it hits the mark so well in terms of changing behavior bearing in mind everything you've just gone through there
4: so I'm a huge fan I wish it was my work I have voted for it more than once as campaign of the year I think it's fabulous. Whether it delivered the change um, that it set out to, um, I haven't seen all the data behind it, but you have, and I know that you are convinced that the outcome Mm. was the right one. If I had to say why I think it did that, it would be, um, number one, it did genuinely drive awareness. And it's easy to think that awareness is a dirty word. If there's no awareness, there's no change. You absolutely have to acknowledge that the first step of changing behavior and attitudes is making people aware. So big tick on that front. Secondly, it was multi-channel. It was not just lived through the media. It was lived through experiential. It was lived in social. It was everywhere uh, where it needed to be to get its audience. And finally, it was creative. So it genuinely cut through, it turned heads, it created conversation. And hand-in-hand hand with awareness, that is, those are two very important steps on the journey to change.
0: Excellent. Uh, now, you have talked about uh, not being too greedy and all those other uh, issues. Um, so I'm going to throw this back to you and say, uh, without being too greedy... If this was your campaign to generate change within the industry, what's the one thing, and only one thing, you've got to, to ask for that you can get agency owners, or, or, or in fact those running in-house as well, to avoid you know all those sins that you've talked about today?
4: Do you mean the one thing I would do to change the industry, to yeah. make them better at... Yeah. Just, just one, I think the one, one little thing, thing at a time. The, you can do lots of things, as you said. Thing the one thing would be that I would ask the judges and the owners of the awards that there are in the industry to literally throw out any entry that doesn't have proper outcome measurements and where the outcomes that are measured don't relate directly and clearly to the objectives stated. So I'm a bit militant on that front, but that's the one thing that I think would make the biggest difference in the fastest way.
0: Excellent. That's a a good way to finish. Um, Ali G of Fleischmann uh, Hillard Fishburne, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Well, that's it for show 41. So thanks again to all my guests, Emily Colker from Pearson, Morven McKinnon of Levi's, and of course, Fleischman Hillard, Fishburne's Ali G. Thanks also to the PR Week team here at PR360 for letting me loose on their speakers. And don't forget, you can listen to all our previous shows on our new website at c And uh, you can subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn just by searching for the C-Suite Podcast. And as always, if you're on iTunes, please do take the time to give us a uh, positive rating and review because that helps us up the business charts and obviously more people get to listen. Um, finally, if you want to get involved in these shows in any way, you can contact me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith or just use the contact form at the website, which again is c-suitepodcast.com. Uh, thanks for listening and goodbye.